Good morning. My name is Reverend Claire Carter, and I'm a deacon serving this congregation. And uh, before I begin, just let you know what that means. Deacons and elders are ordained in the United Methodist Church for a lifetime of ministry, but elders are called to order, sacrament, word, and service. And deacons are called to word, service, justice, and compassion. So um, we don't do order very well. And uh, (laughs) I'm just here to remind you how good it is to have people who order what you're doing. In the last service, uh, my microphone kept drifting from my face. And uh, when I preach, I really try to look at you. So I did not see the like 10 people in the back of the room trying to tell me that they couldn't hear me. So I'm going to invite you, if you have a hard time hearing me, just just make a fool of yourself and let me know. (laughs) I'm not saying I have anything worth hearing, but I'd like to leave that up to you to judge um, after you've heard it. So as I prepare to preach, would you bow your head, join me in prayer. God, we pray you will meet us in this space this morning, and you will remove any distraction that separates us from your word, your calling, and your grace. We are a people who have come here searching for you, and we desire now to meet you here. Bind us together in your name. Amen. Amen. So Wildly Faithful is our series, and Wildly Courageous is my task for the day, and there is plenty that is wild in the Bible that I could talk about. So much great material, Um, maybe sermons that don't get preached that often. There's um, the giants that wanted to become friendly with human women. You don't hear that in a lot of sermon series. Uh, There's the prophet who calls two bears to attack 40 priests because they made fun of his baldness. Uh, those, those don't come up in the rotation every year. There's something called the Witch of Endor, which sounds straight up out of Star Wars, but is just in the Old Testament. But these wild stories are not about being wildly courageous. And I'm, I'm supposed to talk about courageous, how to be courageous. But I'll tell you that I don't like to preach about being wildly courageous because it's so easy to hear stories from the Bible about courageous people and think, yeah, but that's not me. <laughs> that's, that's not who God's calling me to be. That's, not, that's a great story. Glad it happened. It's not about me. Okay. Um, it's easy to dismiss those stories. So I'm not going to be encouraging us to be like one of the heroes of the faith today. Instead, I would just like to call us to the method that Jesus most often used to guide his disciples. I'm going to place three parables in front of us to see what we might glean about being wildly courageous. Now, just a quick word about parables. They seem simple, uh, but the longer you look at them, the less they make sense, uh, and then they're over. And uh, so we'll look at the parables. They're difficult, they're complicated, Uh, but let's get on the same page first about being wildly courageous because I'm not here to preach to you about, um, you know, running into battle or storming castles, Um, not the type of courage that I have in mind. I'd like to share with you a story of someone I know who was wildly courageous. Um, It's about my um, great-grandmother, redheaded nanny is what we called her. And uh, just so you can understand who she was, her dad wanted a boy, um, but she was my great-grandmother, 
so he named her Lewis anyway because he wanted a boy. And Lewis was a middle child with red hair, left-handed, lots of freckles. And she decided at three, she just had too many targets on her back. So she wasn't going to be called Lewis when she went to school. She wanted everyone to call her Happy. And she married a man with the last name Hunter. So for decades, she was Happy Hunter. That's who she was. So um, that's my great-grandmother. And she was a spitfire. She had a quick wit. She was very confident. Uh, one time, my dad had some professional photos taken at like some bar association event. And he got her a framed copy and put it on her mantle. And the next week when we were back at her house, he opened a drawer and that photo was in there. <laughs> he said, Nanny, why is my picture not on your mantle? Because this is his grandmother. And she didn't even look up from what she was cooking and she said, you want a better picture, bring a better face. And she was just an honest woman, right? Ready to speak her mind. So that's my great grandmother, redheaded Nanny. Um, in her 90s, she fell and accidentally broke both of her hips at the same time. And she needed to spend some time in assisted living. And the home in which she was living was halfway between my mom's house and my church. So I would just stop a couple times a week, just pop in and say hi and, and be with her for a little bit. And that is how it happened that at age 16, I was the first one in the family to encounter the symptoms of her dementia. So um, my dad's family is white, and my mom's family is Mexican. And even though Nanny had 14 great-grandchildren and nine great-granddaughters, and they were very close in age, she only had one that looked like me. And so she could always pick me out really easily. We were very close. It made her joy. She just had a hard time getting everyone's name right, but she'd be like, that's Claire. Okay, so we sat next to each other, and we talked, and um, we loved each other very much. And so one day I went in to visit her, and to my surprise, she did not recognize me. And she thought I was her nurse. And it was a very surprising thing for both of us because all those emotions hit me, and so I'm starting to cry, and she's realizing something's wrong, but I don't understand what's happening, and she's trying to talk to me about what's going on, and we're just kind of <laughs> going back and forth. And finally, I said, I know, I will try to meet you wherever you are, because she still knows who she is. So I said, yes, Happy, you know, you have three children. I showed her the picture of her kids. I said, your daughter Carol is married to James. They have three children. And Carol's son, Keith, he's married to, and she cut me off. She said, oh, I know her. That's that wild woman that wears red lipstick. That was my mom. <laughs> so we'd met each other again in, in about 1993 is where she was. And um, as she said, wild, her eyes got really big and her eyebrows raised and her mouth opened. And as sad as it was to realize what was happening, I was really delighted to meet her again, that we, we found where we are together. And also to hear some family stories that um, she might not otherwise have told her sweet, darling, dear, great-granddaughter. Um, we, we enjoyed our day together um, and learned new things. But the way she said wild, even from the safety of her well-appointed 24-7 care room, 
the big eyes, pupils trying to just expand and take in as much light as you can with the raised eyebrows, you know, signaling surprise, with the open mouth, just intrinsically taking that breath in, like your body is trying to get that oxygen to the brain, your muscles try and make a decision. That's the wildly courageous I'm hoping we encounter in our text today. It is um, anxious, uncertain courage, right? Trying to understand what to do next, really unsure in this moment that we're in. So the first place we'll look for this, this anxious courage, this wild courage, is in the parable of the ten bridesmaids found in Matthew 25. It says, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten young women took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. When the foolish took the lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with them, with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all the young women got up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the other young woman came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, at first, this seems so simple. The women who were not prepared were not prepared. uh, But the actions of the five women who had more than enough oil don't really match our Christian thoughts about what we should do. They didn't share their oil. They sent the others out so much for, you know, do unto others and what we preach there. But this is a very simple way to read this text, to see the women sort of competing with each other, which is probably not true. They're all bridesmaids. They're all there for the same reason. Um, But if we imagine these young women not as 10 individuals, but as stand-ins for the church, the story gets actually even wilder. Half of the church is just sent away and misses the party. What kind of good news is that? There might be people right now thinking that there's half a church you'd like to be sent away. That's between you and God. But half the church gets sent away. And I don't like the fact that the light packers who only packed enough are the ones who get the heave-ho out of this and miss. It's not even their fault that the bridegroom took so long. This story makes less and less sense. But what if we put ourselves in the shoes of the young women who entered the wedding? To live faithfully, they had to stay the course through the inconvenience. They had an idea of how this night would go, but it's taking so much longer than expected. Now imagine the look on their young faces when the groom arrives. Could it be similar to my nanny's face with the big eyes and the raised eyebrows, mouth open, not sure what's about to happen because half of the group has left? This parable reminds me of how our youth leaders, Rebecca and Audrey, talk about youth ministry during the pandemic. 
Even though kids lived through months and months of online classes, they would still get onto Zoom at night to be part of youth group. So when we as adults were all really tired of these meetings, maybe you noticed some of your, your church committee meetings had very rare attendance during the, the pandemic maybe, these kids would still get online to be with each other, which is so hard for anyone, but especially for kids who had so much energy and such a need for social connection. But they were wildly courageous to stay in that space so much longer than any of us were prepared to be. And while they're not going to a big wedding anytime soon, they did just take a fantastic trip to Orlando as a youth group. We had 55 young people, 16 sainted chaperones, who went down for three days to ride roller coasters and sing worship songs and enjoy what it means to be the church together because they were courageous enough to stick together through that very inconvenient time of social distancing. And now they get to enjoy this feast together. That's really hard when we think about the formative years that we had. All of us looking back on our youth as a time of freedom and wandering and days spent in the sun, they spent it online. But they were being wildly courageous. Faithfulness that is wildly courageous can look like just sticking through the inconvenience. Now, in another parable in Luke 11, 5 through 10, Jesus tells about another friend showing up at a really inconvenient hour. He says, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, don't bother me. The door has already been locked. I'm in bed with my children. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything out of friendship, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. Again, at first, it seems simple, a story of asking and receiving. But on further inspection, we can find at least two interesting notes. First, the friend who has welcomed the visitor was really actually unprepared to host, but still opened the door, pushed through that inconvenience, and tried to be gracious. But the close friend that the host turns to and again, Jesus doesn't bring up this do unto others piece that, that we know him so well to say. The close friend is not gracious. And Jesus says, even if his heart is unmoved by your pleas, if you keep knocking, he'll be irritated enough to give you what you ask for. Once again, don't be distracted by the individuals in the parable. See the church as the unprepared friend who was willing to welcome and wanting to host, but needed the support and cooperation of another. It may not be the heart that is moved to bring bread to the table, but persistent irritation can get the job done. This parable reminds me of the United Methodist Committee on Relief, UMCOR. It is an organization that churches like us, we pay all of their administrative fees so when there is a natural disaster, when there is a tragedy, that people can donate money directly to people in need of aid. And we do it year after year after year. There are hurricanes and floods and wildfires and tsunamis all over the globe. 
and every year, millions of dollars are sent into those communities. We send volunteers, we send supplies, we send our thoughts and prayers, and we send money directly into those places that need it. And do you know how we send all those millions of dollars to do that? We keep asking over and over and over again. You stick around a Methodist church long enough, you will realize anytime someone says UMCOR, just go ahead and pull your wallet out. And then you're going to have to start asking your friends and neighbors to help UMCOR. And then your friends and neighbors are going to start queuing up that Sarah McLaughlin song they used to play on ASPCA commercials, you know, right when you come in the door, in the arms of an angel, she's coming to ask again. That's how we do it. We get people outside of the church who will never come in and worship with us, who are never going to participate in this way, to give to others, not because we move them with our songs or our sermons, but because we're persistent. We keep showing up and asking. And in many ways, being wildly courageous means trying again and again and again on behalf of someone who is in need. One final parable in Mark's gospel. Jesus says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a bushel basket or under the bed and not on the lampstand. For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Again, in this parable, we find ourselves in darkness, in need of someone to be wildly courageous. This seems really, really simple. If you buy a lamp, use it. It also sounds kind of ominous. All of these have like a a little looming sense of judgment about them. But if we see the lamp as the word of God or the way of Jesus, we can see it as a reminder not to misuse this gift by leaving it someplace unimportant or untended. Remember that song, that word is a lamp unto my feet. It's supposed to be in front of us. It's supposed to be guiding us. But parables are not allegories. Uh, It's it's not simply representational. It's not a one-to-one ratio. There can be different layers of meaning within each of these really small sections. So what if the lamp is the church and the flame that sets it aglow is the Holy Spirit? It wouldn't be the first time that the Spirit had come down in Mark. Actually, earlier in the Gospel, in the first chapter, at the baptism of Jesus, we read... And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So for Jesus, these parables, they come from a place of deep personal understanding. A very trying time, 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, where perhaps during these long days and lonely nights, he was dreaming of friends and parties full of tables of food, or even just a little light for warmth and cheer. What a strange place to be in right after you have received a baptism a blessing from God. You're my child in whom I'm well pleased. And then to be alone and to be tested and to be tried. If the church was created to be that comfort, 
that witness of hope, it was not meant to be for places where tables are full and guest lists are long. The church was meant to be in the wilderness, shaped after Jesus' own experience. Now, although our nation is young and our denomination is younger and our congregation is even younger, we don't judge ourselves by our last century as a church or even our last three centuries. We really judge ourselves by our last 50 years. And for many, it may feel now that the church is somewhat of a shadow of what it once was. We find ourselves in a wilderness we never could have imagined. So what is in these parables that guides us to be wildly courageous as we are trying to understand what we're doing here, what's supposed to happen next? We've read that we're called to be faithful even in the inconvenience. Discipleship will not follow the plan or the path that we chart for it. We're called to be persistent on behalf of others because if our sermons and our songs won't sway people, Jesus tells us at least our tenacity, our irritation can get the job done. We're called to be reminders of the hope we have in Jesus, hope in a world where everyone has enough and where we treat each other the way that we want to be treated. The church is called to be wildly faithful because in every generation, there are more than enough reasons to believe that we actually are alone, that the big plan has fallen apart, and that the temptations and the loneliness of our own fears will overtake us, that nobody's really actually in control. In every generation, there is a time when it feels like we are gasping, trying to figure out what to do. Maybe it seemed easier when our parents or grandparents or our great-grandparents were the adults, but it was not any simpler then. No, but the church is called to what it has always been called to, to live courageously, to tell the stories that give us hope. And through the telling and the retelling and the questioning and the wondering and the laughing, we find ourselves in time again, living in faith, in the presence of God and one another. That deeply held faith, that, long, that the long-awaited one is still coming. That deeply held faith that the empty table will be filled to overflowing. That deeply held faith that when we look for light in the world, it will be just exactly where it belongs. So if you find yourself saying, it's not my time to be wildly courageous. Those years were before me, or that's not who God's called me to be. I just want to say, don't worry about it. Being wildly courageous doesn't make us a hero of the faith that we're going to talk about for 2,000 years. Being wildly courageous means looking at the incredible, overwhelming, fast-paced world, and in response, taking time to tell stories to each other. Don't focus too much about getting the lesson right or, or knowing the history or studying the Greek and the Hebrew. Focus first on just telling the stories and enjoying them, enjoying the company, and meeting each other in the space where we find who we are again, who the church has always been, 
a people called to be wildly courageous in a world in desperate need of hope. Would you join me in prayer? God, we hear you calling. We often feel unprepared and uncertain how to respond. We ask that you would speak into this community, into these hearts, how we may continue to be your people, to live wildly, courageously in the name of Jesus. Amen.